right, well, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors uh, here, and we're grateful that you have chosen to come out and worship with us today. Half of our congregation's on vacation this week, and so we're grateful that you are here. We're in a series entitled Soul Rest, and we're in the third week of this series. I want to say, before we jump into the scriptures, I want to say thanks to Peter for leading this morning. Andrew and Ashley are on vacation with Reed and Maggie and uh, they're in the mountains. Uh, Andrew texted me yesterday and said they had four bears outside of their cabin. And I wrote back and said, fun. And I don't know if he agreed with me or not, but they're having a great time. Um, turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to get to that scripture in, in just a few minutes. This is the third week of this series entitled Soul Rest. And we traditionally like to teach through books of the Bible verse by verse. And we've been in a series on the book of Hebrews and we pushed pause on that series in order to take some time during the month of June in order to talk about how a Christian finds rest. When, we, uh, when you think about this term soul rest... Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11. He said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you stop and think about your life, how many of you would say that that characterizes your life? That your Monday morning experience is a moment of soul rest. And throughout your day, as Monday turns to Tuesday and Tuesday turns to hump day, that you would look at your week and say, oh yeah, my life is a life that is described as restful or that soul rest could be a term that you'd use to describe it. My guess is for most of us, the term that would more quickly come to mind would be restless. That we are a people who struggle in order to find rest. Eugene Peterson once said, I think the besetting sin of most pastors, at least evangelical pastors, is the sin of impatience. I look at my own life and I can see that after 15 years of church planting that there is a tendency within my own heart to take responsibility for things that God never intended me to be responsible for. That to be too busy, too involved, and ultimately too tired for my family's good or my own. If I it were completely open with you this morning, if we were at a 12-step meeting, I would probably introduce myself by saying, hello, I'm Brad, I'm a pastor, and I'm a recovering workaholic. I have a tendency to take on more things than I have time. My wife would agree with that. My administrative assistant would agree with that. I don't delegate well. 
I'm working on that. I find too much of my identity in results or accomplishments or performance. I tend to fall into ruts where I allow my schedule to run my life. I don't know if you ever have that trouble. And I think it's not just me that all of us to some extent struggle with restlessness. We live hectic lives. We're hurried, at times even frantic, and we move from event to event, task to task, multitasking even in our appointments. I don't know if you even realize how busy your life has become, and it's just the norm. I find it funny when I have appointments with people, I tend to take out my phone and I'll um, sometimes turn it upside down or sometimes I'll leave it up, but it's on vibrate. And as I get text messages regularly during the appointment, the people that I'm meeting with seem to be more bothered by the fact that I'm not looking at my phone than I am. Do you need to get that? My phone's buzzing. They're looking at it. We're so distracted. We do meetings on top of meetings. So while we're meeting with people in person... We're also answering text messages, answering emails. Uh, Excuse me, I need to take this phone call. It's more important than you are. Or my favorite is the Apple Watch. And the individuals who think that they slyly are checking their text messages under the table. You sure do look at what time it is an awful lot. We do meetings on top of meetings. We are continually connected, constantly. We've become a people who are just constantly connected. Technology has brought about incredible advances. But the speed that is introduced into our culture, in our daily lives, oftentimes it leaves us restless and tired, impatient, unable to relax or unwind or disconnect. We check our phones as if we were waiting on, a, on life-threatening test results and we're waiting for the doctor to call. And we live like that all day long. I find myself watching TV and when the TV moves to the commercial, I reach over in order to get my phone and check Facebook because my goodness, we couldn't be bored and just relax for a moment. Like we don't even understand at this point in our society what technology is doing to our brains. We don't yet understand it, but it's changing us. We know that 225 million workdays a year are lost in the U.S. due to stress. That's nearly a million people every workday who are not working because they're stressed out. 77% of Americans regularly experience physical symptoms that are caused by stress. Things like headaches or stomach cramps, achy joints, back pain, ulcers, breathlessness, bad skin, an irritable bowel, tremors, chest pains, palpitations. 77% of Americans are feeling unhealthy on a regular basis because of Physical symptoms of stress in our lives. Restlessness, not soul rest, but restlessness has become the norm within our society. 
And I think as Christians, we all desire this soul rest that Jesus talks about. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Gentle and humble in heart, you'll find rest for your souls. But the question is, how do we find it? How do we achieve it? Because the cultural wisdom tells us that in order to find rest, the solution is to get more organized. Have you ever tried that before? Like, I'm doggone it, I'm going to get more organized. And when you try to get more organized and you're like, well, in getting more organized, what I found is that I actually have more things to do than I thought I had to do. So I actually now, in getting more organized, have discovered that I need to get up earlier so that I can get more done. And then we find that we don't have enough time to get everything done that we've discovered needs to be done because we got more organized and we started getting up earlier and there's still not enough time. So then we say, well, now I need to delegate. And we find people to delegate to. And as we begin to delegate, we still see that we don't have enough time or money. And so we say, now I'm depressed and I'm disorganized because I can't get it all done. And we go through these cycles in our life in which we're trying to find out how do we make it all work? How do we find rest? And my question for us this morning, the title of this sermon is The Source of Rest. My question is this, what is driving all of this within our society? It's a long introduction. We're going to get to Ephesians, but I just want to ask, what is driving all this? What causes us to be so overworked, so overcommitted, so overconnected, all while restless and oftentimes, here's the big thing, unfulfilled? What drives the busyness of our lives? Is that just the world we live in? I mean, is that just where we are as a culture? This is just the new norm? You know, the funny thing is if you look back and see the way in which technology has affected us, back in, um, I can't remember if it was the late 60s or the early 70s, as technology was really beginning to speed up, there were people who went before um, Senate and House committees and testified and said that as technology speeds up, that, that all the apps that will be generated and all the, um, all the discoveries that will be made will actually give us so much more time back that the number one problem of Americans will be what to do with all our time. Because they predicted in the 60s that the work week would, would uh, decrease from, from 40 or 50 hours down to as many as like 15 or 20 and that would be the problem. But technology hasn't done that. It's done the opposite. It's spun us out of control. And as we look for how do we find rest, the truth is our busyness has little to do with the world and everything to do with our hearts. The problem of our busyness comes from within. We oftentimes look for solutions to busyness, by, but we take the wrong approach because we try to get everything done quicker or be more efficient or scale down. You ever known people who are like, I'm going to just become minimalist, and that doesn't work either. Or sometimes the solution to our busyness is we say, I just need, I just need a vacation. And so have you ever tried to get everything done? Maybe, maybe you can't afford a vacation, so you just make every weekend a vacation. Have you ever tried to get everything done during the week? So you can, and, and how often on Sunday do you say, I am not ready for Monday. I am not ready for the weekend to be over. Or, or maybe you've struggled and gotten everything done to go on a vacation. You're like me, you went to the beach a couple of weeks ago. And have you ever come back from a vacation just to discover that the pile got taller while you were gone and you kind of stop and wonder was it even worth it to go on the vacation 
Have you ever felt that way before? We will never find soul rest by concentrating on the physical. We have to look deeper. We have to look within. Oswald Sanders said this, work, even hard work, when the mind is at rest, is health giving. It produces fatigue, but no tension. The fundamental cause of strain is to be found in the mind, not in the body. What's he talking about? He, he is saying in a sense that our busyness comes from, not from what we do, but rather from our desires that cause us to make the choices we make. Our busyness comes not from what we do, but from our desires. As we look into this passage today, we're going to look at this text um, that I hope will help us get to the heart of some of our busyness. It's a very familiar passage. We're not going to spend a ton of time in it. You know it well. You're going to recognize the big word grace that's in this passage. Look with me at Ephesians 2. You're going to, these verses are very familiar to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, if you're sitting here and you're listening today, if you're a Christian who's in the room, most likely you will claim these words as your own. You will say, I live by them. Maybe you would even say that you stake your faith on this doctrine Justification by grace alone, through faith alone. But the truth is, is that if you begin to look at our lives, our lives reveal that we're actually functional atheists when it comes to trusting in God's grace in the everyday stuff of life. Don't get me wrong. As, as, as believers, we'll say, I need God's grace to save me. And we might even say, I need, I understand from a theological perspective that I need God's grace to keep me. But we don't understand God's grace. We, we're not motivated by God's grace. We don't find soul rest even in the midst of our work because we're not looking to God's grace in order to motivate us. We're looking to our own motivation. Look at what Paul is writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2. I don't think we'll ever understand soul rest. I don't think we'll ever understand how to rest until we understand this doctrine, this theology. A lot of times whenever we talk about doctrine, we kind of start to yawn and we go, oh, is, is that just what preachers like to talk about? Is that just splitting hairs? I think that doctrine has some of the best application if we can come to understand it. And this doctrine is so important to us. We'll never find soul rest without understanding our identity in Christ. And that's what Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus about. Uh, he has taken the first two chapters of this letter that he's writing, and it's all about their identity. It's all about, hey, guys, I want to remind you, this is who God is, and this is what He's done. If you read through chapters 1 and 2, you can't find a single statement where Paul tells the church of Ephesus to do something. He doesn't do that. He is reminding them of who their identity is in Jesus. And, and for us to find rest, we have to 
be reminded and, and continually preach the gospel to ourselves, remembering who we are in Jesus, that his work has already been done. Look at what he says. In verse 8, he says, you're saved by grace. That's God's unmerited favor. You're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. And we oftentimes, as we think about grace, God's grace has been extended to us. We'll typically connect that with forgiveness. I've been forgiven. But to have a full understanding of grace, if we only connect grace with forgiveness, then we're always just going to think of the gospel as something that saved us. Something in the past. I prayed a prayer. I came to know Jesus. I trusted him. I had an experience. God became real to me. He became warm to me. My heart was warm to the gospel. It will always be something in the past if we only think about grace in terms of forgiveness. But if you study this word, there's always a connection when we think of the word grace between forgiveness and power. Because God's grace actually, yes, saves us from the coming wrath, but His grace also keeps us and it motivates us. So we have to understand that grace isn't just forgiveness from God. It's also power to live the life that He's called us to. And he goes on and he says that this grace that's been given to us is not a result of works or else we'd boast. It says that we're His workmanship. This, the Greek word there is poema, that we're His work of art or His masterpiece. Preach a whole message on that? Do you think of your life as being um, that God has created you and the gifts that he's given you and the story that he's writing in your story is a masterpiece that he wants to use? And grace becomes our motivator. As we find our identity in what Jesus has done, grace is our motivator. And it's almost as if like grace is, is the engine of the car and then the Holy Spirit's the gasoline. And it all comes from Him, that He is our motivator, that He is the fuel for our lives. Now, as we think about Ephesians, I want to tell you really quickly about two normal guys who you will recognize both of their names, but they were oddly transformed by this doctrine of grace alone, that we're saved by God's grace. The first guy's name you'll recognize as Martin Luther. Many don't know Martin Luther lived around 1500. He was an angry monk. But when he came to understand Romans 1.17, he got it. And his life was changed forever. Romans 1.17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now that transformed his way of thinking. Let me give you a quote. He said, I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. 
Luther went on to be one of the great reformers of the evangelical church. And he came to see the doctrine of justification by faith alone to be the hinge on which all the Christian life swings. And I want to leave you one of my favorite quotes by Luther and then explain the importance of this doctrine using the quote. He says, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. What a strange thing to say. Why would something that we speak or say that's understood, why would we need to beat it into their heads continually? Bottom line, because we don't believe it. We don't believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that God's grace is what keeps us and motivates us. We don't believe that. Look at your life. Are you anxious? Are you restless? Are you frantic? Are you hectic? Are you hurried? If any of those words describe your life as they do mine, then it's a reminder to us that we need to repent because we're not living as people who are motivated by God's grace and what He's done. If we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, let me ask the question, why are we so busy? What do we have to prove? What are we trying to earn? And why doesn't God's grace motivate us in the everyday stuff of life? The answer is because we don't trust Him. We don't trust God in the everyday stuff of life. Soul rest isn't about doing more or doing less. See, we get, we get hung up in the exteriors, in the getting organized, in the, in the slowing down. Maybe, maybe I'm not satisfied. Maybe I'm unfulfilled because I'm just not doing enough. Maybe I need to go volunteer. Maybe I need to change my schedule. Maybe I need to do less. It's not about doing more or doing less. We live busy, stressful, anxious lives, not because of our schedules, but because of our theology. I want to tell you another guy that you'll recognize his name. William Wilberforce. He was one of the most productive people in all of history. The banner that waves over his whole life was that he lived to do good. As is well known, chief among his good works was the massive social good of bringing an end to the slave trade and ultimately all of slavery itself in the British Empire. Now, Wilberforce was an interesting guy because they said that he had more ideas for the public good than there were factories that were springing up during that time. They said that you you couldn't even keep up with all his ideas for doing good. But in writing a very influential book, Uh, He sought to bring reform um, to the British Empire. And he sought to bring reform to the moral outlook of his nation. Now, if you're trying to change the morality of a people, and you're a guy who's known as one who does good in all of his life, wouldn't you think that he would write about doing good? He didn't. He wrote a book on doctrine. It's essentially on... uh, Doctrine that is focused on this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Why? 
Why would he write a book on doctrine when he's known as someone who is such a a do-gooder? I think it's because Wilberforce came to understand that the embracing that embracing the truth that God accepts us apart from our good works is the precise thing that causes us to excel in good works. Let me say it a different way. In other words, the only way to be productive as a Christian is to realize you don't have to be. Do you get it? Jesus has already done all the work. He's lived a perfect life on our behalf. He suffered and died on the cross For you and me, what more could we add to his sacrifice? Let me offer an illustration for you from David Murray's book. This is a book entitled Reset. And I would especially encourage any man who's age 35 or older to read it. But I would really encourage anyone in the congregation to read it. The The subtitle is Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. And and David Murray, I I love this illustration as he describes the way in which we live a life of soul rest. He gives this illustration. He says, take a look at five people printing Bibles on the same assembly line. Okay? Okay. Mr. Dollar is asking, how can I make more money? Mr. Ambitious is asking, how can I get a promotion? Mr. Pleaser is asking, how can I make my boss happy? Mr. Selfish is asking, how can I get personal satisfaction in my job? They all look and feel miserable. Then we bump into Mr. Grace, who's asking, in view of God's amazing grace to me in Christ, how can I serve God and others here? From the outside, it looks as if all five are doing the same work, but inside, they look completely different. The first four are striving, stressed, anxious, fearful, and exhausted. But Mr. Grace is so energized by his gratitude for grace that his job satisfies and stimulates him rather than draining him. Where grace is not fueling a person from the inside out, he burns from the inside out. Think about Jesus' life. Jesus was busy, but he was never hurried. He was never anxious. Jesus was never stressed out to the point of sin or restless to the point of sinfulness. How did he do it? Jesus was filled with the Spirit. He was empowered by the Spirit. And he was completely certain of the Father's love for him. He was, Jesus was completely certain of God's deep and abiding pleasure in him. Remember his baptism? The Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon him. And the father declared, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Have you heard those words from your father in heaven? Do you understand in the depths of your heart that God is pleased with you? 
Do you believe that on your most sinful of days that God's pleasure rests upon you in the same way it does as if you had arisen at four and prayed for an hour and studied your Bible and gone out to take out the trash and witness to your neighbor? Do you believe that? The doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, tells us that God is pleased with us, not because of what we have done, but because of Jesus' work. And when we understand that, it's the motivation, it's the engine, and the Holy Spirit is the fuel that gets our Christian cars revved up. And all of a sudden, we've got incredible traction and speed, not because of all this stuff we need to do, but all this stuff that we get to do. That we're excited to go follow Jesus and see His kingdom come and His will be done because we understand the work that He has already done in us. Our ability to rest is connected to our willingness to trust in the Father. Jesus was thoroughly, he was utterly convinced of the Father's deep and abiding love for him. He didn't look, he didn't live in order to gain the Father's favor. His life was an expression of pure joy that can only come through deep and intimate communion with God. Hebrews 4 tells us, we haven't gotten there yet in our study of Hebrews, we will get there. But Hebrews 4 describes rest as one of the proofs that we found the gospel that our lives become characterized by a profound rest, an inner rest, that without Christ, we will work even while we're resting, but that with Christ, we will rest even while we're working. As you think about this idea of that we are saved by grace through faith, how does that change your life on Monday? I mean, this all sounds good, but how do we enter into soul rest tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off? How does this make a difference? We're going to look at some very practical steps next week. We're going to look at the power of grace in our lives through releasing and receiving. So we're going to look at focusing in on our limits and understanding our need for sleep and for Sabbath. It's going to be hugely practical. All right, so this week's doctrinal, next week's going to be practical. I hope that you'll come back in here or if you're out, listen to the podcast. But as you think about how grace is the engine that drives us, I want to bring two terms to you as we finish today that I hope will help you. I want you to think of motivating grace and also to think of moderating grace. We need both in our lives. Some of us need more than the other. So let me describe to you really quick. What is motivating grace? Well, first off, in order for us to understand God's grace to us, we have to understand that God's grace is all around us. That we have to realize that every provision in our lives is a means of God's grace. And so the air we breathe, the shelter we have, the water we drink, this is all God's grace to us. Banana pudding and bacon and deviled eggs, God's grace. A nice cold drink in the summer, whatever your favorite drink is, God's grace. Relationships. Grace. And and, and first, we have to realize that each of these things, especially chocolate, chocolate ice cream, I left that one off, is God's grace. The ability to work, God's grace. It's been given to us. None of these things are things because God can take them away in a moment. 
If you don't believe that, go back and read some of the stories in the Old Testament. Go back and read some of the kings in which God instantly took their life from them, took their provisions from them, took all their influence. All these things are God's grace, but motivating grace is what gets us up in the mornings. Okay, But some of us are so fueled and so, for whatever reason, ADD in our work that we need God's moderating grace in our life. God's moderating grace says, Brad, that sermon is enough. You've got about 12 hours a week to work on it if you're going to coach missional community leaders well and disciple your family well and, and do all the other administrative and other things that I've called you to. So 12 hours a week, it's enough. Leave it. It's not all up to you. God's moderating grace says, Brad, the responsibility for changed lives is not on your shoulders. It's on my shoulders. So rest. Do you understand moderating grace? Motivating grace, some of you need. Motivating grace, some of us need to share a little of our motivating grace with you because some of you are slothful. What the Proverbs call uh, slothful, I call lazy. Over and over again, we've been studying the Proverbs in our coffee group, and I love, there's this one analogy they just keep going back to, and my translation is this. You're so slothful, you stick your hand in the cookie jar, and you're too lazy to even bring it out and put it to your mouth. Kind of describes that over and over again. And so some of you need God's motivating grace. Like you look at your life and it's all selfish. It's all lived for you. You say, how is God's kingdom coming and His will being done through my life? Because this passage says, if you look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says that God has prepared works in advance that we would walk in them. That God has saved us, not just so we get sit around and go, well, praise be to God, glorify Him. Yeah, brother, woo amen. I'm just going to sit here and twiddle my phone. No, God's motivating grace gets us going, listen to me, Christians, so that one day we'll stand before the Father, and the Father, we pray that He will say, well done, good and faithful servant, which means we did something. Right? And so this idea that I just sit around and choose the church that's right for me and do what I feel like works for me and I just it's all about whatever I think is best, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life says that we have become slaves to God and it's a great thing. And so we're motivated by His grace. And as we're motivated, it moves us to action. But we can become so moved to action that we take God's responsibility on our own shoulders. Let me illustrate it by ending with this quote from David Murray's book. He goes on and he says, Alongside Mr. Grace, Mr. Perfectionistic takes pride in flawless performance. If he ever makes a mistake in his work, he berates and flagellates himself. He carries this legalistic perfectionism into his relationship with God and others resulting in constant disappointment in himself and others and even in God. Mr. Grace's work is just as high quality as Mr. Perfectionistic, but Grace has moderated his expectations. 
At the foot of the cross, he has learned that he's not perfect and never will be. He accepts that both his work and his relationships are flawed. But instead of tormenting himself with these imperfections, he calmly takes them to the perfect God, knowing that in his grace, this God forgives every shortcoming and lovingly accepts him as perfect in Christ. He doesn't need to serve, sacrifice, or suffer his way to human or divine approval because Christ has already served, sacrificed, and suffered for him. Without motivating grace, listen to this really carefully. Without motivating grace, we just rest in Christ. Without moderating grace, we just run and run until we run out. We need the first grace, motivating, to fire us up when we're dangerously cold. We need the second to cool us down when we're dangerously hot. The first, motivating grace, gets us out of bed. The second, moderating grace, gets us to bed on time. The first recognizes Christ's fair demands upon us. The second receives Christ's full provision for us. Motivating grace says, present your body as a living sacrifice. Moderating grace says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The first overcomes the resistance of our flesh. The second respects the limitations of our humanity. The first speeds us up, motivating grace. Moderating grace slows us down. Motivating grace says, my son, give me your hands. Moderating grace says, my son, give me your heart. Give me your heart. The source of soul rest is a heart that waits for the Lord and in His Word we put our hope. Let me ask you, what are you putting your hope in? What are you putting your hope in when you think about your life? You know, the first week, Chris said, maybe the step that you need to take in this series on soul rest is just to repent. Jared said that last week. I would further it. I think all of the Christian life is to be that of repentance. And I've come to realize that my tendency to work and be responsible isn't something I ever get over. It's something that on a daily basis I give to the Lord and I say, Lord, I need you to motivate me. I also need your grace to moderate me. And I need to put my hope in you. Not in getting things accomplished. Not in performance. Not in making other people happy. Not in being busy for the sake of busy so I can brag to others. But that my hope would be in you. What are you putting your hope in? Because here's the thing. This passage seems to go on to say that God has prepared works in advance that we would walk in them. And so there's some good work that God wants us to do. But if we are so busy performing, the danger is that we'll substitute His good works for our good works. That we'll go out and try to accomplish a lot on our own. And you know what we'll miss out on in the process? We'll miss out on the joy that comes in knowing Him, in following Him, and in seeing His name, not ours, glorified and made known. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray together.